Well, good morning, Creekside. Good to see everyone this morning. So, Pastor Jake's out of town, Pastor Shale's out of town, Pastor Jack's out of town. So you're left with me this morning. And uh, so hopefully you can endure, you know, an hour or so with me here. Uh, seriously, it, it is a privilege and a blessing to... Uh, be in here this morning and share the word with uh, my brothers and sisters here at, at Creekside. So we're continuing our study through uh, the gospel according to John. And our text this morning is going to be John chapter 12, uh, 20 through 50. So if you want to be turning there in your Bible or on your device, wherever that might be. But just by way of introduction, um, throughout the gospel, John and Jesus in his teaching uh, use contrasts. Uh, and two of the big ones of these are light and darkness and love and hate. And we see this just build up uh, through the gospel according to John. And we're going to see both of these in our passage this morning. But I want to start out just by talking a little bit about this love and hate contrast. And these can be very strong emotions. We all love certain things and we hate other things. We have preferences, obviously. Um, take music, for example. I have, I'm a big music lover. I have music playing, you know, really throughout the day as I'm working. Um, been involved in musical groups and stuff like that in years past. But I love all kinds of music. I love classical music. I love Jim Barr's playing the hymns over here on the piano. Um, I love contemporary Christian music, you know, some rock music, all kinds of music that I love. But there's always been one kind of music that I hate, and it's called Screamo. Have you ever heard of Screamo? Where there, there's no music, it's just a bunch of screaming. And I, I remember my boys back in the day, but it's Christian Screamo, Dad. <laughs> no such thing as Christian Screamo. No sanctified Screamo. So, again, we all have our preferences. Things we really love, things we really don't care about. And so throughout John's Gospel, up to this point now in chapter 12, the tension of love and hate has been building and building and building. Jesus began doing miracles back in chapter 2. Uh, he has been preaching to the Jews, uh, the established Jews, and all through all of these chapters. And we saw just in chapters 10 and 11 that he's he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Now this is like the biggest miracle, the biggest sign of all. And and the, that event really evokes like this is the last straw. Those who hate him. On the other hand, those who love him worship him. Mary falls at his feet when she sees him. His disciples uh, love him. 
He's just come into Jerusalem with that big procession, with the triumphal entry. All these people, you know, are hailing him, uh, loving him. But at the same time, the ruling authorities, the Jews, the scribes, and the Pharisees, uh, we see in, in verse 11 leading up to our passage, they say, what are we going to do with this man? If we don't do something, we're going to lose our power, we're going to lose our control, so we've got to do something. So in 1153, they say, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So that's the plan. The only, only way they're going to preserve their power, preserve their position, is to kill this Jesus. And not only him, but remember Jake pointed out last week, Lazarus is a walking around witness to Christ. The one that he rose from the dead, he's walking around the street saying, yeah, he raised me from the dead. So in earlier in chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going out and believing in Jesus. So, you know, we're, it's crunch time now. The peak of those who love Jesus, the peak of those who hate him, they're out to destroy him, Lazarus, and, and everything that he has to do with. So, coming into our passage now, beginning in verse 20, with that context. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, remember the triumphal entry, they're there for the feast of Passover, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, Hey, there's some Greeks outside that want to meet with you. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if there's any, like, umbrella that that we would put over this whole passage, it would be, the hour has come. His hour has come. It It had not come in the past, but now it has. And the fact that the Greeks are inquiring of him signals a transition away from just the Jews. He's been preaching the Jews. We're going to see in our passage. They just, they completely reject him. And so now... The focus of his ministry is turning, and he's going to conclude his public ministry in our passage this morning. So, the hour has come. Let's contrast that to earlier throughout the Gospels where his hour has not yet come. Beginning uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, where his mother, they go to the wedding in Cana, and she says, they're out of wine goes to him and says that. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is a line I use in my house when my wife says, Jeff, we need this, this, and this done. I say, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not come. It's a very good line, guys. You've got to remember that one. So, He says, my hour has not yet come. His enemies were always 
you know, wanting to get him. Uh, so chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now the hour has come. There's other instances uh, throughout where he says, uh, my time has not have come. And jump ahead to verse 1 of 13, right, right after our passage. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, from our section right here until that beginning there, this is his teaching, our understanding of what this means, that his hour has come. So let's pick up in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a, wheat, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, as Jesus did throughout his ministry, he will take a common thing, a fruit, a fig tree, something that they are very uh, aware of, and it's in their everyday life, so a grain of wheat. Well, if you take a grain of wheat and just set it on the counter, you don't bury it, it doesn't die, it just remains itself. It's just a, a grain of wheat. But if you bury it and it dies, that is, it disintegrates in the soil, then it grows out into now a plant and it bears much fruit. He's using that as an analogy both to himself and to those who would follow him that I have to die in order to bear much fruit. Jesus, the only solution, as we're going to see, because he tries to avoid that solution, the only solution is for him to die and therefore pay the price, pay the penalty for the sins of the whole world, just like that grain of wheat has fruit. And then same with his followers, same with those who would hear the message. If you love your life, if you hang on to it, if you keep that piece of wheat over here and you don't let it die and let it grow, then you're not going to have eternal life. Uh, he says, whoever hates his life. Now, he's not talking about, you know, emotionally hating yourself, okay? Basically, when, when you see that in the scriptures, it's like you reject your sin, okay, is really another way of saying it. Uh, you reject all that, you, that you're represented in terms of your sinful nature, and you agree with God that it's deserving of punishment, and then by contrast, you love God, okay? Um, so, we see this in a few other places in Jesus' teaching. Uh, let's look at the encounter with the rich young ruler. 
Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, and behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. Amazing. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this young man was going to hold on to his life. He was not going to reject his possessions, and that's what Jesus called for him to do. You know, get rid of your possessions and follow me, and he, he just walked away. He said, I'm just not willing to do that. I, I will not do that. We also see in another passage uh, in Mark 8, he says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The answer is nothing. We see in Isaiah that even our righteous works, what we think is, is righteous, is filthy rags. We cannot offer anything in and of ourselves, so we have to give that up. We have to turn that away and turn to God and say, God, forgive me. Uh, I follow you. I receive uh, the gift that you've given me. So this is something we call the, the great exchange, if you will. We give up our life now, what, what we want to hold on to for eternal life. doesn't mean we, you know, change our personality necessarily, and, uh, but it just means vis-a-vis God, when it comes to making that choice, am I going to follow God and what he is saying, or am I going to follow my own personal way of life? We choose him and we turn away from that and we're willing to follow his will wherever that may lead the great exchange so of course the jews and the ruling aristocracy to put that into context there they're holding on to their life they're holding on to their power their everything they're they're not about to you know start hating their their position so we've seen so far what this hour means that he's going to be glorified and what it means for those who follow him. Now in this next section, beginning in verse 27, we're going to see how this hour 
affects Jesus himself internally, beginning in verse 27. And you'll see the word now repeated in this next section quite a few times, signaling again, that was then, this is now. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the people, uh, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So, picking back up uh, in this section here, Jesus is troubled. His soul is stirred up. If you can imagine, again, he's gone through his ministry. He's poured out his life. He's told the truth. He's told uh, everyone what they must do. And again, they're going to reject him. He also knows, humanly speaking, that he's going to go through intense agony such as we've, you know, no one can possibly imagine. Um, I watched that Passion of the Christ one time. I couldn't stand to watch it twice. Uh, I mean, and, and they say even that probably was not, you know, as bad as, as what he experienced. But we just cannot fathom the pain. And, of course, he knew that he was going to have to experience that pain and also that his father was going to turn his back on him. Why? Because he had to pay the price for our sin. So he's troubled, he's agonizing. If you remember from a, the Garden of Gethsemane, it, it's not up on the slides, but, but just listen. Remember he was there with his disciples. They keep falling asleep. Um, and he says to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of his wrath. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So in the other Gospels, uh, than John as well, we see that struggle, but yet he acknowledges he must follow the will of the Father. He can't not do what his mission is, what, what, it was come, what he came for. So again, the Father vindicates him by this voice. He's done this two other times. One, when he was baptized by John, remember? Uh, right after he was baptized and the, the dove appeared as though it was coming on him, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then in the transfiguration where they went up on the mountain and, you know, smoke and all kind of stuff was going on. 
And Jesus again, uh, the Father again said, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So he's vindicated in, in what also this hour means. His death, resurrection. This is the judgment on the ruler of this world, Satan. The acts that are going to take place during this hour are going to stand in judgment of Satan. His plan is going to be thwarted and it's the beginning of the end, really, for Satan. And then we see this word, all people. He says, I will draw all people to myself. Well, we know that doesn't mean every single person who's ever lived uh, because we know that not every single person who ever lived is saved. Uh, So what he's saying there is all kinds of people, not just the Jews, but others. As he said in, in 1016, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. We see more about this in Ephesians, where Christ broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Now we're one body in the church. So it means he he will draw all people indiscriminately. He's not going to just draw the Jews or just the Gentiles or just some other uh, group, but he's going to uh, draw all people of all nations, as we read in Revelation 5-9, that he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So here's this crowd. They've just heard what he said, that he's going to be lifted up. Well, in John, that means he's going to die. It means he's going to be crucified. Um, and so, what do they, how do they respond? So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law, verse 34, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that is, killed? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, and he really doesn't answer the question, okay? He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So he doesn't answer their question. He's, he's debated back and forth with these, you know, this crowd, these Jews. He's done with that. Okay? Um, but this is another example of the, the Jews of his time not seeing the suffering servant in the Old Testament. They just, they just missed that part. They're looking for a king to overthrow Roman authority and usher in the kingdom on earth. That's what their mentality was, that's what they were looking at. And his response is, listen, the light is here. And remember it goes back to early in the chapter, uh, in, in John chapter 1, 4, and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So he's reminding them again, I am the light, and I'm not going to be here much longer. So while the light is here, and it's shining, you know, 
very brightly now for all to see. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Time is running out. The time is now, as he said. So we move now into this next section here, beginning uh, in verse 36. And, and this, I call this section the dilemma of unbelief, because in spite of everything that Christ has done with his ministry and, and all that he has told them, they still don't get it. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Very important, those few words right there, hid himself from them. This signals the completion of his public ministry. He has done everything he's going to do, and now he's going to hide himself, and for the rest of John, he's going to have the upper room discourse, he's going to share with his close disciples, those who have chosen to follow him, just what this all means, that he's going to die and, and uh, be buried and be resurrected. But he's finished with his public ministry. That hid himself from them triggers the ending of his public ministry. The, then beginning in verse 37, we, we have this commentary by John. And, and he's just sort of telling the readers where we're at in terms of the context. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God." That last little piece there we see. So there are some within the Pharisees who are believing, but they're, they're being secret about it. They're being silent about it uh, because they, they don't want to lose their position. So one takeaway for us here is, you know, we've all been in situations where, you know, we just didn't say anything because we were afraid of what somebody else might think or whatever. So... Let's remember that, to be bold uh, about our witness and, and not be afraid when we're in those situations as we all have been and we all wished, man, I wish I had said this to that guy. I wish I had shared the gospel with him. It was a perfect opportunity, but I was afraid, you know, of how he would react. So, but going back into the passage... You know, now it's easy to think, well, that's just unfair. God is, has blinded them so that they can't believe 
So it's really not their fault. And what I want to unpack a little bit here is what I call the two wills of God. There are two separate and distinct wills of God that we see in the scriptures. Uh, One of them is the secret will of God or the sovereign will of God, what God is accomplishing, okay? The second is his revealed will of God or his precept will of God, what he expects of humanity. So by way of example, um, Judas, we see the scriptures say, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve, Luke 22. Yet in Acts 2.23, we read, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So on the one hand, we have Judas, the betrayer. Even Jesus said in the upper room, One of you is going to betray me. And Satan enters him, so, you know, the ultimate enemy of God is the one who actually, you know, brings this about. But on the other hand, we read that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, here we have the revealed word of God. You shouldn't betray the Messiah, Judas. But over here, that is exactly what God's will was, and had he not gone to the cross, died for our sins, where would we be? Uh, He had to do that to save the earth, but the humanity, but there was evil that caused it. Not that God is the author of evil. He allows it and somehow works through it. Same thing with the uh, his trial, uh, Herod, um, Pilate, and the Jews screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, The soldiers, the Gentiles mocked him. But again, over in Acts chapter 4, we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, the takeaway here is somehow, and we don't understand how, God is able to work through the free choices, even the evil choices of humanity to accomplish his will. Now you say, well, I don't believe that because how could that be? That's where it ends right there. We, we affirm that it is true, what we read in the scriptures, but our finite minds can't always explain everything how it's true. So it's one thing that I emphasize, you know, just in teaching in general and understanding the Bible is we can affirm that something is true, these two wills of God, but we can't explain how that happens. We don't we affirm the Trinity, you know, one God, three persons. Do we understand how that can be? No, we don't. But it's very important that we, you know, affirm what the Bible teaches, even though we may not be able to explain always how that is the case. 
Okay, so finishing up here. So the, that's, that's what I call a, a mystery, okay? And we just leave it in that category, mystery, you know, predestination and free will, again, is in that category uh, of mystery. No one's ever fully explained how that, and, and we won't explain it this side of, of glory, and we just leave it in that category. Okay, so having looked at uh, that last section there where he, he's talking about the dilemma of unbelief, remember he's hid himself, and now in verse 44, our last section, um, this is generally by all commentators believed to be a summary statement of John that he puts in here at the end of this section of his public ministry before we transition into his private ministry in chapter 13. Because again, he's not crying out now in time because he's hidden himself, he's, he's done. So we believe this is John summarizing the message of Jesus that was rejected. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So he presents this challenge uh, to his readers. He presents this challenge to us today. Uh, the judge is the Father and the words that Jesus has spoken. He's not going to judge, but the judgment will be based upon our response. So, are we going to cling to our life, or are we going to let go of it for his sake? So, there's two parts of this. If you've never made that decision to trust Christ, the light is shining, the only way to have eternal life is to believe in the light, to believe in the words that Jesus has given, and you will have eternal life. Give up the pleasures and everything having to do with this life to have eternal life both now and forever in eternity. For us who have made that decision and we've trusted Christ, which is probably most of us in, the, in this room, what we want to evaluate is what what things am I holding on to? What are the little things in my life that are blocking the flow of God's blessing in my life? And we, we all have these from time to time and 
he wants us to evaluate that uh, afresh. When I was in Campus Crusade for Christ back, back in college, we had the, the yellow booklet for salvation, and we had the blue book if you had been saved. And basically what the blue book was how to confess your sin as a Christian and you know, spiritually breathe, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to, to fill your uh, heart and your life again. And there was a little picture of a, I mean, you can't press these things too far, but there was a little picture of a throne, and one of them had Christ on the throne, the other one didn't. And basically, that's our challenge, is are we really putting Christ first, or are we allowing other things to crowd out? Because there's nothing worse than a Christian who knows you know, the right thing, we're saved, but we're, we're rejecting, you know, God's calling in our life. We're uh, essentially quenching the spirit. Uh, so that's uh, not a good place to be in. So I would encourage you to, uh, to do that. All right, so that brings us up to the beginning of chapter 13. I believe Pastor Shale will be kicking off that and bringing it, and, and again, moving into this whole next phase, if you will, uh, of the gospel according to John. I'm going to pray, and then Wes is going to finish us uh, with a song here. Father, we just come before you humbly, and we can't begin to imagine the travail of your son and uh, the agony that he had to go through to accomplish your will for his life and for us. Lord, we are humbled uh, by your act of mercy, your act of grace in sending your one and only Son to die for our sins that we might have eternal life, both for the rest of our physical life and for eternity. And we just thank you for the privilege we've had this morning. Uh, help us to apply this and draw closer to you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.